what all the bench work and research is suggesting to us is that when there's disruption, uh, as there will be, whether it's digital disruption or whether it's uh, COVID disruption, what we find is that the leaders that lead collaborative organisations and take a collaborative approach, both culturally and in terms of their customers, are the ones that, uh, that thrive in that environment while their competitors don't. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, a Quantibos coach and your host. And my guest today is Peter Anthony. Peter is coming to us from Sydney, Australia. Welcome. G'day, Brian. How are you going? Doing well. Peter, two words stand out in my notes about our conversation that we had about this podcast. Those words are disruption and collaboration. How do those two words come together for you? I'm just about to answer the question before you asked it. They come together because uh, what all the bench work and research is suggesting to us is that when there's disruption, uh, as there will be, whether it's digital disruption or whether it's uh, COVID disruption, what we find is that the leaders that lead collaborative organisations and take a collaborative approach both culturally and in terms of their customers, are the ones that uh, that thrive in that environment while their competitors don't. So uh, that's what I've found over the past decade or so working in this space. I, I was originally on the collaboration uh, mission, if you like, and then I found that uh, when there's disruption, as you expect in any business, uh, that's when collaboration is king. I find that so often more traditional leaders have a real difficult time with collaboration. Yes. Traditional leaders were and sometimes are raised on a more a more a command and control approach, which is more the, the hero leader. Where the hero leader is, is the person who is more outcome focused, is usually uh, high IQ and has a, um, a strong vision for the future and, a, and a very detailed plan to get there. The two issues with that we're finding is that one, it doesn't leave the followers anything to do if, if you are that leader and you've got a well-detailed plan from beginning to end. It means if I'm following you or I'm working for you or with you, it doesn't leave me much space to think. And the second problem is that it's rare that you'll find uh, a plan gets executed from step one to step 100. It usually gets to step two or three, then something changes. And when disruption happens, um, a major change happens. And some of the most interesting work I came across actually came from Oxford University in England when um, Rachel Butzman was writing a master's and a PhD in what she calls the collaborative economy. And she predicted the rise of both Airbnb and Uber 
because she looked at the traditional hotel industry, the traditional taxi industry, and she found that those organisations or those, I guess, industries weren't collaborating uh, with their consumers. The taxi industry wasn't collaborating with the, with the passengers. The hotel industry wasn't collaborating or understanding uh, their guests. And she predicted that an Airbnb would rise. She didn't actually predict Airbnb itself, but something like that. And she predicted that something like Uber would arise because it's a, it's a smarter, easier, safer way to travel. And that digital disruption, which happened, what, a decade ago, didn't actually wipe out hotels and taxis, but gave them a, a good hard shake. And what we've found since then is the organisations that have more collaborative cultures internally, tap into the wisdom of the crowd and their organisation, if you like, and uh, the ones that uh, collaborate more with their clients or customers are the ones that experience more profitable sales growth. Does that make sense, Brian? It does. I'd like to bring in one caveat, I guess, to that as we look inside of organisations. We can have all the disruption in the world, and if we're all like thinkers, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And uh, when I talk about culture and that wisdom of the crowd, it's a, it's an idea that goes back to Francis Galton back in 1906 and has since been popularized by books like The Wisdom of the Crowd by James Starecki. And what they've found is that a diverse, well-formed team makes a smarter decision than its smartest member. So if you've got uh, diversity of thinking in the organisation and uh, you have a culture which allows that thinking to get on the table, that organisation will make smarter decisions, smarter internally and, and smarter externally. And there's good science to back this up. Unfortunately, a lot of us tend to employ people just like us, people that think like us, look like us, walk like us, dress like us. And clearly diversity is, is a useful idea socially, uh, but also makes um, good business sense to do that, um, to get that diverse thinking on the table. And, and quite often too, particularly we've found since COVID, that we're more anxious and more introverted than we were pre-COVID. And that was a, a coming up a high um, stress base. So if you're in a an organisation like an engineering organisation or an organisation with a lot of smart thinkers, could be IT organization, you're going to have people that tend to be more introverted. Um, so they're less likely to express their view, for example, in a, in a group or a team. They like to reflect and think about um, reflect and think about what they're thinking, basically. So it's important that we don't just listen to the loudest voices or the ones that are giving the, the shiny PowerPoint presentations in the meetings. But we, we engage the whole piece. And that's when you're going to start making smarter decisions and have a more constructive culture. I did a podcast with one of our other coaches on the introvert difference. Among the things that we talked about that I think are worth highlighting here are the importance for those of us who are introverts to know what the agenda is before we get into the room. Yes. And the importance for those who are facilitating to make sure that you give us the time to reflect, but then you also invite us into the conversation. Yes, yes. I'm in the middle of a coaching campaign now where I'm, I'm working with the senior leaders in a global mining organization. And uh, most of those senior leaders come from an engineering base. And 
I see their psychometrics before the, the coaching takes place and I know before I coach them that they're introverted and it's a different a different approach so it's introverts don't tend to be the first ones to speak they like to think before they they share an idea and they tend to have uh, fewer deeper relationships and like to reflect an idea like if they're attending a presentation or a workshop like to like reflect on what they're learning traditionally in old school thinking uh the introverts there was something wrong with introverts you know, like extroversion was encouraged introversion wasn't i know because i'm a closet introvert too <laughs> i was the guy that my mother had to coax out of my bedroom and, and reading to come and talk to my relatives so i, I know how that feels the culture particularly if you're in a technical um, space or you have technical people uh, in the organisation, it's important to understand that um, that introverted perspective may be just what you need, particularly when disruption happens, because they'll be reflecting, studying more, learning more, and they'll have uh, those fewer, deeper relationships. You used a term a few moments ago. You referred to the smartest person in the room. Yes. And you and I, I'm sure... Uh, you have, I know I have worked with more than one leader who really feels thrown off their game if they don't feel they're the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And yet, to my way of thinking, exactly what you said, the, the wisdom of the room is greater than the wisdom of anyone in yes. that room. The smartest person in the room is the one who seeks as many different perspectives from across the room as they can. Exactly, exactly. And I, I guess you think about, okay, what is the objective of this particular organisation or this particular meeting or this particular conversation? And uh, what we find with a collaborative approach is that the outcome uh, won't be one point of view or the other. It will be something that's co-created that's better than those two individuals or that group of individuals could create by themselves. Hence the power of the collaboration. It's not it's not a dogfight. It's not I'm going to beat you or my idea is smarter than yours or I'm bigger or stronger or more senior than you are. It's let's create an environment, a culture, let's create a conversation where the result is better than the sum of the parts that are making it up. This gets on steroids when you've got a pro-social outcome, uh, when you're working in a humanitarian or pro-social space. And uh, there's been a lot of work done. In fact, the last woman to win a Nobel Prize for economics won that prize in economics for her work in pro-social collaboration, proving that, that pro-social communities uh, create better outcomes for everybody involved uh, when they operate according to, to collaborative principles. So if you are the smartest guy in the room, and you may be, <laughs> you, you may well be you should uh, use that intellectual horsepower to unleash all the other intellectual horsepower in the conversation or the room and all the good research suggests that room or that conversation will create a smarter outcome than either individual is bringing to the table Peter you just referenced collaborative principles could you go through what some of those are for our listeners? The collaborative uh, principles are these. The first is suspend your need to make a recommendation or suggest an idea. That's the first principle. So you think my objective in this conversation or in this meeting is to, to share ideas, share perspectives and share understandings. The second principle uh, would be clear to get all those principles on the table, whether it's a conversation uh, or in a, uh, a meeting. And then uh, find a framework or understand a framework that will help translate those, those varied perspectives 
into a conclusion worth having. So it's uh, it's the opposite of the traditional sales approach, if you like, where you're selling an idea or making a pitch or making a presentation, which always makes me laugh when I see it from people. They'll send me slide decks or send me presentations. I think, well, th- this isn't a conversation. It's you telling me in shiny pictures uh, what your point of view is. They are the first, um, the, the first principles, if you like. And a lot of this has been codified more recently in the rationalist conversation approach. It outlines the same sorts of principles that you need to arrive at, uh, at that, that type of conclusion. Does that make sense, Brian? It does. It, again, raises one of the points that I often am making with more traditional leaders who are now trying to figure out how to adapt to a changing workplace, a changing workforce, which is ask questions and shut up. Yeah, yeah. I like to recommend listen until you disappear. Listen until you disappear. And in that, in that mining project I'm working on now, we're working on psychological safety because old school mining and industrial enterprises were about output. And in this particular environment, it's about coal output, like getting coal, finding out where it is with geologists, getting it out of the ground with engineers, and then getting it to a port onto a ship to China, Japan, Korea, India, whoever's buying the coal, right? The problem with that is that it's an extremely dangerous environment and there's been catastrophic accidents. So clearly safety gets on the agenda, not just for the share price, but for the well-being of the individuals involved. And it, uh, psychological safety really boils down to making people on site feeling more comfortable talking to each other, not just about safety, but just about any conversation. Because you think in that high stress environment, when you think when stress gets involved and people are challenged as they will in any environment, one of the first victims of challenge and stress is a withdrawal from social support, withdrawal from conversations, withdrawal from connecting. So if you've got that overlaid with our earlier piece about a lot of introverts, a lot of engineers and scientists and geologists involved in in the enterprise, You've got introverts under stress. You've got people that don't connect regularly, that are under stress and withdrawing from social support. And they're the people whose ideas you need to help create an environment that's safer. Right? So it's a toxic cocktail. What we're finding is uh, if we look at changing the leadership, not changing the individuals, but changing their, their understanding of collaboration, they create a culture where more of those ideas are on the table. So not only are they making smarter decisions, they're creating a safer environment for the people around them, which is good for the share price and also good for the well-being of the people involved. So you get a, I guess you get two, two tricks for one magic act. I think the other piece that comes into play in a situation like that, Peter, is that psychological safety allows me to move beyond my relation to your role. Yes. And establish a relationship with you. Yes. Yeah. Again, that creates a very different environment. It does. And and often the reason I do so much of this one-on-one coaching is that what I've learned is the collaboration begins with yourself, like understanding who you are, like understanding your traits, for example, understanding if you've got an introverted trait, what that means. Does that mean you like more of one conversations? Does that mean you withdraw from the social situations? Does that mean you're a deeper thinker? Does that mean that you like more evidence-based before you make a decision? Uh, and you, you understand and accept that. So the, the first relationship or collaboration, if you like, is with yourself. So if, if, I'm, if I'm psychologically well-adjusted, I've accepted who I am and I understand how to make my contribution, then the team can go forward, if you like. So that's the first piece. The second piece is the conversation piece, getting people comfortable having collaborative conversations. 
And then the third piece is about, okay, how do you roll that up into a collaborative culture? That's, uh, and then if, if you're looking, we look at that from a leadership perspective first, because we say, show me the leader and I'll show you the culture, because what the leader does, what she says gets amplified through the organisation. And they'll listen more to what you're doing before they listen to what you're saying. So it, it starts there. And then we can work on the culture piece. And then we can uh, also work on the customer piece because you think, well, how does collaboration work in terms of driving profitable growth? Well, when we understand who our clients or customers are and we understand how to have a collaborative relationship with them, they'll embrace that. They're not being sold to. And then you get the profitable growth too. So it's working It's working internally in culture, externally with the customer relationships. It's generating the profitable growth that's also brian just a a better way to be a human it's just it's expressing more humanity and uh, what concerns me as we discussed before we did this podcast is that we've never been more polarized and the pew research is suggesting that people have never been less likely to change their point of view as the result of hearing something or having a conversation because our social media algorithms serve us up more of what we already think. Like we're the good guys, yet we're the good guys, other guys are the bad guys. If you think red, the bad guys are blue. If you think blue, the bad guys are red, <laughs> whatever it is. If, if you like basketball, that's great and baseball's bad. If you're into baseball, baseball's great, basketball. It just get more and more and more polarized. And uh, that also creates anxiety because we're getting more and more entrenched in the same point of view and not getting the sort of outcomes that our evolutionary spirit is beckoning us for. I mean, if you look, uh, I, I do, I just finished reading a book on evolution of the brain and they suggested that one of the reasons Homo sapiens rose above the rest of the apes back then, three or 400,000 years ago, was because we, we developed these prefrontal cortexes that allowed us to communicate and talk and collaborate with each other in tribes that were more successful than the others. So it's it's very much part of the DNA. One of the reasons why we are more anxious now is because we're not allowing our DNA, we're not allowing our humanity to surface. And even Carl Jung suggested there's an inner self that beckons us on a call to adventure. That call to adventure is to work together to collaborate and uh, make the world a better place one collaboration at a time, whether that's one conversation, one relationship, one business meeting, one customer situation, one leadership encounter in the culture. That's what we're hardwired to do. So it comes to the point where you feel good by doing well. You feel better when you're collaborating. And the reason you feel better is it's part of the DNA. It's part of, of how we're designed. When you mentioned conversation, it took me to the quote that is in our intro to each of these podcasts, but I think it's worth repeating right now. And it's from Judith Glasser's Conversational Intelligence. And she said, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of the culture, which depends on the quality of the relationships, which depends on the quality of conversations. Yes. yes. Everything happens through conversation. Yes. And one of the reasons I reached out to you, Brian, was that I, I love that idea and love the idea of your podcast. And uh, I don't just, uh, for me, love's a verb, not a noun. And I, I went back to college and did a master's in communication um, to study conversations. And I wrote a book I called Collaborative The Magic of Collaborative Conversations, because what I realized was that it's okay to talk about this philosophically, if you like, or generically. But you think, okay, how do I go about being more collaborative? And it really, it really nets down to the quality of your relationships and the quality of your collaborations. 
is the quality of the conversations. And then I ask, well, I was asking myself, well, what's a, what's a collaborative conversation? And I had to study that because I, I like to ask says who, right? I like to look at the bench work, look at the research, look at, uh, uh, look at this from a more evidence-based approach rather than just making recommendations off the top of my head. And that's why I called it Collaborate because there is magic. There's magic in collaboration. I'm thinking collaboration, magic, abracadabra, collaboratabra, the magic of collaborative conversation. So I, I love that quote. That's I'm all over. I wish I wish I'd said something that smart. I'm sure you probably have, Peter. <laughs> um, you said something a few minutes ago that I want to come back to, which was the relationship with the client. Yes. And what I think I heard, not in the words, but in the message, was we should not be vendors to our clients. We should be partners with our clients. Yes, yes. And in fact, the, the, the collaborative the collaborative approach, if you imagine traditional selling, it's the opposite. Um, rather than having a structured series of questions and closing sales, you're opening relationships. Because if you think, Brian, the last time you felt you were being sold to, you probably got a bit cynical about the person and the relationship. You probably distanced yourself from them. And you probably thought I've got to put downward pressure on fees and rates. So if that's what you're looking for, knock yourself out selling. <laughs> and the, the, curious, the, the curious thing is I've done a lot of work for buyers too, like people in buying organizations, and they want to be collaborated with too. So you think, okay, um, I'm running an organization. I'm asking myself two questions, asking myself, who are ideal clients for us? Uh, who can we build this business around? And the organizations I've worked with, what, in 12 countries over more than a decade, every organization has like a core group of, of clients, like the, the top end of the tail, if you like, the fat end of the tail, um, or the, I should say the head. They're the ones you're after. You think, well, how do we make ourselves more ideal for them? And rather than sitting in a room and working that out yourself, you can ask them. And I often do this on behalf of my clients. I'll call their clients or their customers and say, hey, this railroad, this organization, this enterprise uh, is interested in building um, a relationship around you, building an organization around your needs. Uh, would you mind coming in for a, a conversation to better understand how we can do that? And I haven't had a no yet. And they don't say no because I'm so charming. They, don't, they, say, they say yes because they're interested in that too. And you think, okay, I'm going to build a relationship around them, understand what the ideal markers of the relationship are for them. And uh, quite obviously and quite intentionally build the business around those ideal clients. And that's when the real growth happens. Because uh, you can think of this idea of um, a lot of people say, oh, we want satisfied clients. And I say, really, you want satisfied clients? The research says 80% of satisfied clients are happy to change supplier, 80%. And I imagine if, if I went home to my wife tonight and said, you know what, honey, I'm interested in a satisfactory marriage. I'd like you to be satisfied. I just watch the roof of the house blow off if I said that to her, right? Right. It just satisfaction is not enough. Are you going to have like a a tomb? So this is you know, here lies Peter. You know he was a satisfactory guy. He led a satisfactory life. You're looking for something that's ideal. Now ideal may not be possible, but but the objective of making an ideal and making that an an obvious intent. What you do then is you create advocacy in the clients. It's an advocacy relationship way above satisfaction. 
where they're prepared uh, and happy to advocate you. And you think of sales teams, the biggest sales team you have is your customers and clients and your employees. If you're looking for better employees, they advocate you, more good people will join. The customers, uh, they'll be in tribes. People that are buying from you will know people, play golf with people, hang out with people, go skiing with people just like them, and they'll advocate you. Uh, so you're looking for the advocacy relationship, which is way above the satisfaction level. And that's when the growth happens. You get the constructive culture that's delivering uh, an ideal relationship with the clients. The clients uh, are embedded with you. Uh, the, the business grows and the shareholder value increases. All these things uh, travel together. And it, it all comes from a collaborative intent. Listening to you, I'm reminded of a conversation I had a while back with David Noor, who's the author of Relationship Economics. Okay, I and like that. David was born in Iran, mm -hmm. and his parents sent him to the U.S. when the Shah was overthrown. And he grew up here living with a, a distant relative. And he said one of the big cultural differences that he realized between the culture that he grew up his early years in Iran and the culture he found here in the U.S. is in Iran, people built relationships out of which business might grow. Yeah. In the U.S., we look for business out of which relationships might grow. Yeah, I like that idea. I like that idea. And that was one of my first experiences when I left Australia. I started uh, working in different countries. Because uh, the, the culture we have here, it, it's symbolized by g'day mate. G'day mate. So we'll, we'll meet complete strangers and we'll say g'day mate to them. I didn't really understand what that meant until I, I worked in different countries. Like I worked in Cairo, I worked in the UK, worked in the US, worked in China. And g'day mate symbolizes our approach, which is g'day, which wishing you good day, wishing like being, giving you an optimistic intention, if you like. And mate, which is assuming bondship. I, I'm, I'm suggesting that, that you're my mate even if, as I meet you. So I'm assuming, wishing you well, optimistically, and I'm assuming a level of mateship because most white Australians came from convict stock. They were sent from, sent from the UK. We came here as convicts. We had a really harsh um, beginning 200 or so years ago. And that mateship was really important because we're in a harsh, hostile environment, convicted of petty crimes, Set in boats of the country to start a to start a new not a new civilization but a, a new country if you like that became our mantra and and when I I travelled I realised that's not necessarily the intention relationship start but it's a it's a good way to start like assume a collaboration unless you find otherwise and you put the relationship first and the business will follow rather than the business first and the relationship will follow. And fortunately, all the good research is suggesting that too, that approach works. Peter, we have to wrap this up. Thank you so much for the conversation. Any last words on disruption and collaboration? What I'd suggest is expect disruption. It's going to happen. And remember the ABC, which is a always, B, B, C, collaborating. Peter Anthony, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, Brian.